fellow movie lovers, and welcome to Cult Fiction, a podcast where we re-examine Hollywood's redheaded stepchildren. As a redheaded stepchild myself, I'm Stephanie Johnson. And I'm Andy Bowell, and today we are pulling back Hollywood's crypt to review Jeremy Saulnier's 2013 indie masterpiece, Blue Ruin. I apologize for the mystery. I don't mean to scare you. You're not in any trouble. I just thought you should be somewhere safe when you found out. I liked this so much better than Green Room. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, I think you told me that immediately. <laughs> um, and yes, for those of you who uh, missed the stinger at the end of the last episode and are completely unfamiliar, Blue Ruin is the predecessor film to Green Room, which we reviewed all the way back in episode five and is like a deeply niche favorite film of mine that I have like, I can talk way too much about. And I had purposefully never watched Blue Ruin because there are so few Jeremy Saulnier films, but this was the appropriate time. And, and it was fantastic. It was amazing. It was beautiful. I think in comparison, Green Room was LOL Nazis. And this had a deeper premise of family guilt, retribution, revenge, anger, and how anger can kind of just become really nonsensical and toxic. Yeah, absolutely. So it kind of blinds our main character because I'm getting ahead of myself, but the story is basically a you killed my father, prepare to die revenge story. Yeah, the thing that was going through my head so often is there's a, an old like parable kind of saying, he who digs a grave out of revenge digs too. Mm -hmm. Some, something like that. Um, but in case you missed the film, Blue Ruin is the story of Dwight Evans, a man living a humble and haunted existence as a beach bum after the murder of his parents a decade before the film begins. Dwight learns that his parents' murderer is being released from prison and begins a journey to avenge their death by killing him which runs Dwight afoul of the murderer's family and begins a bloody and ruinous cycle of vengeance. It's so beautiful, and so much of this is just predicated on, I have to cause revenge. I have to cause revenge. I don't care about context. I don't care about any kind of logical retribution. Right. And and to kind of like to, to start digging into it. So Dwight Evans, our main character, um, he's played by Macon Blair, who returning to cult fiction, Macon Blair, along, of course, with Jeremy Saulnier. And it turns out the editor, Julia Block, um, Dwight, we begin the film and Dwight is living in his car shot up with bullet holes he took out the engine block like he looks like a west hollywood hippie just complete devastating silence and this film doesn't tell you so much in a way that i really appreciate mm -hmm. but it shows you things it never tells so it shows you this man whose life is just wrecked just destroyed and, like, there's a shot of, like, a newspaper that says double murderer set to be released. And so, okay, you can put together, okay, somebody murdered somebody 
else to somebody else's in regards to Dwight. It feeds you bit by bit. But from the word go, this is a man so utterly consumed with grief and the need for vengeance that it just stops his life. His life ends the night his parents die is, is basically, you know, what we kind of are led to show or mm-hmm. led to believe. Mm-hmm. And even later in the movie, when we meet more of his childhood friends or his sister, he's he's said to have just run off, to just disappeared. Last time I saw your face, we were putting up missing posters. Right. So it's almost like his parents died and he did too, kind of from the fallout of, oh my gosh, I'm an orphan now. And it seems in retrospect, comparing him and Sam's grief, Sam buys a house, has two little girls, unknown of her relationship status, but she also has a job that she mentions a couple of times. She has a babysitter. So she's been able to pin her life together. Right. And that's the fascinating horrid heartbreaking thing about Dwight is like comparing him to his sister or even just comparing him to like anybody in cinema or anybody like in real life like people people's parents die people's parents are even murdered people's close ties are brutally ripped away from them let's just speak in movie terms for for the purposes of our conversation and you never really see somebody just shut down completely Mm. just like he's a he's a either a high school senior or a immediate high school graduate at the time where his parents are killed and the dude's life just stops which is unique Yeah, and we see some peaks into Dwight's life, but like you said, it's revealed very, very small bits at a time. So in the beginning of the movie, we have a uh, local officer come and find him, and his first response is, oh my god, I got caught again, because he is houseless. He's living in his car on public property. Well, and and to just digging out a little more, the very first thing you see him do in the film is he has broken into a family's suburban house. He's taking a bath in their bathtub when they, like, come in, and he kicks out the window and, like, scarpers off unbeknownst to them. And so when the officer finds him, the first thing is he's like, is this about the house? Because, like, I'm sorry. Yeah, and she knows his name so it's very clear that they have had a history together and during their conversation she says it's no big deal you aren't in trouble for anything i just wanted you to be somewhere familiar so like the jail interrogation cell is somewhere familiar right and this this uh patrol officer is like not only his best friend but like his his closest confidant in his world at the start of the film right he has this person she says by the way your parents murderer is being she uses that word right but is being released and then that's our that's the inciting incident the sound kind of gets grainy and warbled and then next thing you know he's hitting up a gas station for a map 
Yeah. And he takes the engine block out of his trunk and or uh, he takes the battery out of his trunk and like starts his car back up, which is again just such a like it's it's this fascinating little thing of like no, Dwight has the means to have a life. There is just something in his heart, in his soul that like will not let him actually do that, actually move on. He would rather exile himself on a boardwalk in Delaware than go to a normal life. Right. Even his sister says when they do meet up later, you have $2,800 in all of your stuff. Um, and I'm assuming the $2,800 is like what the parents had left over. Yeah. Um, so it's just really, really interesting to learn small bits about our protagonist's life in tiny little slices throughout this really beautifully shot film. Right, to the point where like, I, I think it's effective and I think it's wonderful, but it almost goes too far How for so? me. Um, so I I am such a big fan of, of show don't tell and let the audience figure it out themselves. But like when you first meet Sam, it is entirely unclear if Sam is his ex-wife, if Sam is his sister, how if Sam is just his old friend how does Dwight know Sam it gets revealed like after she's been out of the film for 20 minutes that she's his sister and so mm. it, it does give you that but in the moment there is no actual context because the 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 like climactic peak becomes Dwight kills somebody Dwight gets caught by the family Dwight is rightfully afraid that the family, the Clelands, are going to kill his sister out of revenge, which they try to do. But there's a there's a home invasion sequence, and there's this whole there's all of this emotional stuff with Sam when you don't actually know how Sam is connected to Dwight. You just know that they are, mm -hmm. which isn't deal breaking. It's just if if I'm going to you know respect this enough to pick nits that's one I can pull uh, and, you know, have an issue with. Sure, that makes sense. It's 18 gun, man. From the show. So there's a stainless. It's like me watching Green Room for the first time when you've watched Green Room eight times. <laughs> right. And, and like, I, I, so we talked about this a little bit when you were telling me how much you preferred this. And, and I love this film. Um, Green Room is kind of built on this own house of cards of narrative circumstances mm -hmm. and it has to be the the night the music venue run by nazis and there has to be a heroin manufacturing ring in the bottom and it has to involve this one specific instance of a murder and it's if you take out any one thing the entire narrative of the film kind of falls apart and Blue Ruin exists in a much smoother, much more foundational story level where like, yeah, the things in the film have to happen for the film to happen. That's true of any film, but it's not so predicated on this twist has to be a thing and this twist has to be a thing. Because at the end of the day, it is a very simple, straightforward 
story of our hero is searching for vengeance and that vengeance in and of itself becomes the inciting incident for the back three quarters of the film yeah and there is kind of a theme between the two of this thing happened because someone left something behind so in green room the whole movie is predicated on someone left a cell phone in a green room right hence green room yep the entire back half of dealing with the cleland family is predicated on the fact that dwight forgets his keys in the bathroom where he stabs the dude who he thinks killed his parents. Right. So after that, the whole latter half is unveiling, but part of me kind of wonders if that had not been a thing, if he had not left his keys there, would the Cleveland family even know who killed Wade? Because part of me is like, well, Wade was not the greatest of dudes maybe he would have gotten bumped off by someone else anyway. Right. Absolutely. And and I I actually really appreciate that line of questioning because, yeah, to actually think that through, like, if Dwight doesn't lose his keys that he keeps on a necklace around his neck, he is able to drive off before anybody sees him except maybe young William who is in the limousine and could maybe see Dwight but does William even know Dwight he just sees this this guy covered in blood walking out and drives away and and so it does leave this plausible thing of like well would the rest of the film even happen would the Clelands instantly like try to just do like a check of Dwight's situation for vengeance would they even know how mm-hmm. you know if they don't he he winds up leaving his car there which they take and presumably that has the information of where Sam his sister lives without the car they don't know where the sister lives and and, and the narrative house of cards falls apart right because the car has the VIN number and the VIN number is registered to Sam's house right and she makes a whole thing about how you have to get this registered in your name she says that because it's a shitty beat up 1968 Pontiac. Right. That has bullet holes in it and it's old and it's falling apart. And she's probably getting mail of like your warranty is expired. We're and it, trying to reach you about your expired warranty. Exactly. <laughs> she's like, let me stop getting these voicemails. But so that actually, that becomes a, an interesting thing where like, at its core, this film is kind of a simpler journey to follow, but you see shades of Sayune's style. Yeah. And you see shades of what he would continue to do in Green Room. Now, it's important to point out Blue Ruin is not his first film, but it is his first widespread feature film. Um, I have not seen it, but he's, he he has one film that like won awards at South by Southwest called Murder Party, and presumably carries on a lot of his themes. But like figuring out the Saliene oeuvre, those are two very French words. <laughs> the man the man likes to set up incredibly circumstantial chain of event narratives. Mm-hmm. And 
ruinous gore. Oh my god, can we talk about the arrow scene? Yeah, yeah, we can. So, Dwight kills Wade. Wade's family comes to Sam's house. Dwight is smart enough to be like, Sam, you and the girls have to leave. They're going to come and get you. Like, I don't care. Hate me, yell at me, whatever. Just go. Just GTFO. And then Wade, or excuse me, Dwight does the thing that he does in people's houses, except also it's his sister's house. And you see kind of the background of his life of like, oh, he knows to use a flashlight. Oh, he knows how this sound carries. He knows how to break into things. He knows how to do this. Right. And it's clear like, oh, this is how long this has been going on. Dwight is this fascinating mixture of like a realistic action hero on like a Rambo level. He has such a beneficial set of skills in his history of being a, a amateur home invader. Mm-hmm. like you're talking about and complete realistic incompetence in so many ways like like getting shot in the leg with an arrow right as he is running away from these home invaders who are here to fuck up his sister's house uh here to kill his sister here to kill him so he gets shot in the leg with an arrow and we're sitting and watching this i'm like oh you got to get that out And you say, well, no, that's a closed wound. Yep. Last thing you want to do is pull out the arrow. Which is, you know, you're a boy scout. I'm a girl scout dropout. So so he has this arrow in his leg that he then cuts the shaft of the arrow off of his leg with a saw. Yep, takes a hacksaw, saws through the metal, buys <sighs> buys a scalpel, and does some amateur actual surgery, um, which like, <laughs> the, the, the dude is cutting into his leg with a scalpel, and I say out loud, oh, I'd be screaming, and then he starts <laughs> screaming. But then he proceeds to go to a hospital fucking covered in blood, and he faints on the floor, wakes up in a hospital room, looks at his leg, goes, yeah, that looks about right, then bolts out the door. Right. And it's just like, fuck that hospital bill. Well, right, because, like, what is he going to do? He's got he's got stuff he needs to do. At that moment in the film, he has an unconscious man in his trunk. Oh, yes, he dies. Yeah, I mean, so, like, just to talk about the gore in general, this, so, 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 Green Room. We talked about this in Green Room. Green Room starts with these beautiful, gorgeous, quiet shots of of nature and scenery and kids riding a bike. And again, there's a lot of this, a lot of the DNA in Blue Ruin goes into Green Room. So this is a, a quiet, reflective, hauntingly beautiful film with large swaths of silence and just... Uh, Macon Blair like silently doing a thing because he's got no reason to talk to anybody and this is a film where somebody gets their neck slashed open somebody gets a knife stuck in their temple somebody gets shot with an arrow somebody gets their face blown off Mm -hmm. this is 
a silent, a, a, a largely silent, beautiful film punctuated by just insane, visceral, bloody, desperate gore. Yeah, it's a lot. It is a lot, but it is effective. It is, and I think um, even when we fil- when we filmed Green Room, I wish when we did the Green Room episode, we talked about how there was overtly green shots and filters right. and overlays. And in this movie, we have overtly blue shots and filters and yeah. scenery. It's really, really, really pretty to look at and really hard to look at sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Saline uh, is his own cinematographer, which I always respect. And just like, trust the man to use composition and lighting to just create something absolutely wonderful. Then trust him to like, make you absolutely like, shout in your seat and recoil as something just ruinous ruinous is the word of the day for this episode as something ruinous happens on screen um i had to wait for him to aim before i could shoot it had to be legal at least on my part his his head that's what bullets do and it's it's i i deeply love it i i am very okay with this yeah um so much of this was shot in like northern appalachia Mm -hmm. there there are large sequences that take place in virginia and i was like oh that's kind of like it looks like our backyard here Mm -hmm. in Asheville. it's very pretty very scenic um but maybe a little bit farther than it looked like at first glance um let's talk about benny Benny is the classmate of Dwight, who Dwight kind of realizes halfway through the movie, oh, okay, if I'm going to fuck a bitch up, I need to find Benny. Right. Because Benny has guns. Because it's, again, in that Barry show, don't tell, it is very subtly implied that Benny is ex-Marine. Right, to the point where I completely missed it. So, so like you said, Benny is Dwight's friend from high school. They were close enough friends where, like, Dwight's, uh, Dwight goes to Benny's mom, and after, like, staring at him for a minute, she's like, oh, my God, Dwight, hello. Mm-hmm. Um, and he finds Benny. He's like, I need a favor. Please don't ask. Do you have somewhere with your guns and Benny's like I sure do I've got my like cabin in the woods Mm -hmm. when they go there Benny opens up his gun locker and they have this conversation about the use of firearms and I at first glance got this impression that Benny was a complete poser who like did a lot of research and like never actually uses these guns at all, just knows everything about them and is like a complete like all talk, no action kind of guy. And you were like, no, I think he knows how to use those guns. He's got like a Marine sticker on his foot locker and he's got like this one line of dialogue that kind of alludes to time in the service. Well, and even his mom says like, oh, he just got back from... And I'm right, like, right, right, right. You don't say that when someone is traveling. Fair, absolutely. And, and and as it turns out, you are you were correct, and your take was the correct one. 
when two-thirds through the film, Benny saves Dwight's life by blowing off somebody's head from uh, 300 yards away. Because Benny is so cool. Benny is dope as hell. Benny is, like... Benny is somebody that we wound up cheering for, I think, more than anyone else in the film. Just as, like, <laughs> this this genuinely competent, but also, like, kind in ways that need to be, morally ambiguous in ways that need to be. Because Benny's just like, yeah, sometimes you gotta kill a guy. Like, he was pointing a gun at you, and that's really all I needed to know. <laughs> um... Benny also looks really familiar, Andy. <laughs> Benny does look really familiar. Why does he look so familiar? I saw him and I was like, he looks like, he looks like Biff from Back to the Future. Which I, I, I love that take and you're so close. You're, you're thinking of a, a classic 80s family film and a like antagonistic force therein. He is not Biff from Back to the Future. He is Buzz McAllister from Home Alone. It was the squinty eyes. I was like, I know you. Like, right. in my bones from something. Oh, you mean the childhood movie that it's not Christmas until I watch it? Yes. The thing you've ostensibly seen every year? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I mean, he's a child, but the he, he looks like he looks. He looks like he looks. <laughs> and sure enough... Also, thing that I discovered after looking him up, he's weirdly obsessed with Condoleezza Rice. Which is fascinating. So neither here nor there has nothing to do with Blue Ruin, but now all of our listeners know that kid from Home Alone who isn't Macaulay Culkin is obsessed with Condoleezza Rice and made two movies about her. Made two movies. One of them, if you, if I remember you telling me correctly, is just a documentary about how obsessed he is with Condoleezza Rice. Correct. Which is interesting, if, if nothing else. <laughs> um, so we, we've gone the whole time without speaking it, but yes, Benny is played by Devin Rattray. Mm-hmm. Rat Ray, Rattray, I'm going to go with Rattray. Rattray and Solignier. Yeah, well, Rattray's a little less like mocking than Rat Ray. I'm, I'm sure he got a lot of shit on the Home Alone set from all the other child actors for his last name. Rat Ray. It sounds like Scooby-Doo. It does sound like Scooby-Doo. <laughs> So um, Benny is wonderful. Benny is like this objectively positive force in the film to the point where after saving Dwight's life, Dwight repays him by ripping the car battery out of his car so that Benny cannot continue to follow Dwight and save his life. Yeah. Because Dwight is a man with a set mission that he knows he will not walk away from. Yeah, Dwight really said, no, 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 don't follow me. I hate you. Go back in the woods. <laughs> well, Dwight said, like, listen, there is no ending for me other yeah. than, like, I will die doing this. Yeah. And if you come with me, you might get hurt, and I don't, I can't have that. You are too good of a person and good of a friend because jesus man shows up after 10 years if somebody i knew from high school showed up 10 years later and was like i need a favor 
Please don't ask me about it. Do you have guns? I wouldn't do what Benny did. No, I'd just be like, my best friend does. Go talk to him. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, speaking of how good of a dude Benny is and how much Dwight knows he's like, he's not coming back from this. There is another point where when Benny and Dwight are just hanging out, Dwight mentions he has a Polaroid mm. of the two of them as like 16, 17 year old young boys at a strip club and they're both like super nervous because they're young boys at a strip club and they right. like have this really awkward Polaroid with the stripper. I am just now putting together. So he, Dwight says, if you ever find that Polaroid, ruin it, destroy it. I'm just now putting together. He didn't ask him to destroy that for like shame or like, this is embarrassing. He's saying destroy it because I don't want you linked to me in any way, shape or right. form. I just now understood that. Yeah. That's so crazy. It is because Dwight Dwight is this amazing character in just how, like, like I said, how effective he is in some ways and like how just the dude dropped his life to then start thinking through every possible thing that could happen once he goes on this inevitable mission of revenge. One of which being Dwight acknowledging that he is not a good person he is not turning the other cheek he is killing people which even if they are not good people the act of killing them does not actually make dwight any better and all he wants to do in the entire back half of the film is nullify any collateral yeah he sets his life to do one thing put a knife in wade cleland's temple he does that half less than halfway through the film. And then the rest of it is just, oh shit, oh fuck, this is the one thing I didn't think through. They're gonna kill my sister. I don't want this guy who is my friend to like be accosted by reporters when it gets out that I like shot up this family. Like it's just I need to do this soul-destroying thing. I don't want anyone else's souls or lives to get destroyed in the process. Right. He's incredibly exact. There's a scene in the home invasion where he's waiting for these people to come after his sister's house. He puts a jar of change in front of the front door so that he'll know when they open the front door. Right. Later, the man who Benny blows the face off of, Teddy... He buries Teddy and, like, writes for him a, I guess, tombstone yeah. of just, like, here lies Teddy. It's just his name. But it's, like, these very specific details of, no, no, I don't want to be doing this either. I have to do this. I have to do this. There just is nothing left for me. The Can most. We, go, oh, go ahead. The most. The, the most he does is have, like, consideration for the car and the final fallout. He, he kind of predicts that, like... So, so we, we've kind of lost the plot. Um, once Teddy dies, Dwight is able to figure out where the Cleland family home is. Somehow. Somehow. 
Um, presumably he knew where it was, I guess. That, that part is also unclear. Um, but he goes there expecting to, like, finish this, finds the family gone, and then proceeds to, like, set up some booby traps. Um, but the one thing he has, like, consideration for, and he kind of knows how this is all going to end, he hides his car, leaves the keys in it, and in the final moments, like, tells the only person in the film who he thinks might not continue the cycle of bloodshed, young William, my car's down the road, hidden, take a left here, find it, go do whatever you're going to do with your life. The keys are in the ignition are his dime, or the keys are in the dash is his dime words. Right. And young William is fascinating because Teddy reveals moments before he has his face blown off that young William is Dwight's half-brother. Because the whole reason that Dwight's parents are dead is that Dwight's mom slept with Wade the Elder. Other way around. That White, Dwight's dad Dw- slept with... Huh? So so th- that was yes. my... Yes, yeah. yes, 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 yes. Dwight's dad is having an affair with somebody in the Cleveland family. It's not really made clear who... It was who it was Wade's mom. Right. So Big Wade's wife. Right, yes. Big Wade Cleveland, this patriarchal backwoods gangster figure, does a murder of Dwight's family, but also has cancer and knows that if he goes to prison, he will never come out. He will die of cancer in prison. Wade steps up for his dad and says, pin the murder on me. I'll confess to it. I've never been to prison before, so I'll get out in 10 years on good behavior, which is exactly what happens. Um, But the whole twist reveal is that Big Wade was the murderer and that young William, who Dwight had like interacted with once when he stole the limousine, um is technically Dwight's half-brother. Right. And even before you know that, William is kind of gives off this, maybe not kindness, but non-homicidal quality that the rest of the Cleveland family exhibit. Right. So this ends with death and destruction of the entire Cleveland line, as well as Dwight, William is the one to walk away and we do get the visual signifier that like the cycle of bloodshed and vengeance is over when young William throws his gun away and takes Dwight's car. It's this, it's tying everything up with a bow. The, the cycle of ruination has ended. Yeah. And I love that it ends with young William because even in his final moments, Dwight looks at young William and puts together, no, no, Teddy wasn't lying. That's my younger brother. Right. And you see the dawn recognition on his face. And it's this very, very nice culmination in a way that I really appreciate out of this film. Absolutely. I I will absolutely admit that this fits together more fluidly than Green Room does. Mm-hmm. This is this starts simply 
it ends more simply it's not kind of the ambiguous open-ended well everyone's dead except for two people ending of green room right and there's a circulatory nature of william he becomes his half-brother in a sense because yeah. he's now the orphaned drifter of the blue pontiac right he oh i didn't even put that really together yeah he unwillingly involuntarily ascends to his brother's status through the literal manifestation of inheriting the pontiac i killed him Cleveland, I killed Um, so yeah, I, I, I want to talk a little bit more about Macon Blair. He, I mean, he is like the driving force of the film. This movie literally hinges on his performance as Dwight. Um, I mentioned that he was returning to cult fiction. I didn't mention he was in green room. He is the like second in charge Nazi club guy who at the end of the film throws down his gun, surrenders, and winds up being the only protagonist besides Anton Yelchin and Imogene Poots to survive, the only bad guy to survive. Um, this is a phenomenal performance from him. I, I really can't say it enough. It is so much facial acting because he's not speaking a whole hell of a lot. When he is speaking, it's this wonderful, I, I say wonderful because I appreciate it, wonderful pained just representation of this truly haunted man. Megan Blair has a really fascinating cult fiction connection beyond just the fact that I enjoy his films. Oh. Which you, you discovered moments before we started recording. I sure did. Megan Blair, uh, ladies and gentlemen, is going to be, is the director of the soon-to-be-released Toxic Avenger reboot starring Peter Dinklage. Which I have heard is gory and awesome. Why are we going to go see this, Andy? Because we have to. It is too, like, baked into this show. Toxic Avenger being our second episode, being the first real piece of garbage we ever saw. Wow. So look forward to that, listeners. I have no idea when Toxic Avenger reboot is coming out. I know this is a bit out of order. But I'm going to go ahead and do it anyways. Okay. Do you know why else we're going to go see Toxic Avenger, Andy? <laughs> why else are we going to go see Toxic Avenger? Because, yes, Macon Blair wrote, directed Toxic Avenger. Kevin Bacon is starring in Toxic Avenger. <laughs> what? So it can be done in one. Oh my god, okay. You're welcome. I had no idea. Like, I seriously, I haven't, like, looked very much into this upcoming Toxic Avenger film other than, like, knowing I'm going to go see it. I need you to know I was looking for my bacon as we were getting ready to record and just typed in Mick and Blair, Kevin Bacon, uh -huh. and then saw Bloody Disgusting, Kevin Bacon playing the villain in Toxic Avenger remake. Oh, Jesus. You're welcome. 
It's happening. Here's a photo of it. I'll put it in our notes. <laughs> he looks grumpy as hell. He does look grumpy as hell. Oh, this is this is fascinating and interesting. And this reboot is going to be such a, a trip. This is so... I'm beside myself. Do you understand now why we had to do it in this order? Yes, absolutely. Okay, but you had a bacon though. I, I did have a bacon. The thing that I will say is your your bacon can be done in one for a movie that technically isn't out yet, which I'm gonna count, I'm gonna count, you win. My bacon can be done in two with films that have actually come out. Oh, okay. <laughs> Um, so we've, we've talked at length about Devin Rattray and how he is Buzz in Home Alone. Mm -hmm. Home Alone, of course, the villain in Home Alone, the one of them at least, is Joe Pesci. I love him. Joe Pesci is in JFK, the Oliver Stone biopic, with Kevin Bacon. Perfect. Beautiful. Wonderful and great and goodly, and you still take the cake on this one, I will say. <laughs> well, no, I mean, as far as the rules go, it isn't yet released. Kevin Bacon could still come to his senses and back out. Oh, that would just make me sad at this point. If, like, he, like, <laughs> torpedoes this film because, like, he never saw the original and has never heard of Troma, and, like, somehow somebody shows it to him and he's like, oh, I don't want to be associated to that oh no worse he listens to this and goes oh <laughs> stephanie and annie don't think i should be in toxic adventure that means kevin bacon is a fan of ours which would be quite a lofty goal i would die <laughs> you know what else i will die on my grave about what 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 <laughs> this isn't cult okay why not okay it won so many things. But has it won an Oscar? It hasn't won an Oscar. Something can still be cult and have like a bunch of like South by Southwest and like cane buzz. Ugh, listeners, you can't hear me rolling my eyes. But I I'm think they can. I really think they can. It's indie. It's not cult. The two can coincide, but this one is squarely in the indie section. Mm, interesting. What I will say in counter to that is this film had a, a micro budget um, for one thing. Like it was made for $420,000 um, before I go on. What is your, is your Oscar the Kickstarter thing or do you have it? Mm -mm. Okay. Uh, made for $420,000 entirely funded through Kickstarter, which is like different. Um, that's just this was kind of something that created buzz about the film was it was one of the first feature films to be successfully financed through crowdfunding in that way and people pointed out to it as like oh this is like the magic of what kickstarter can actually do i posit that it's cult because a bunch of people were like yeah okay i want to put money to this that's why it's indie well so it has a budget of 420,000 it has even even with a micro budget for a Hollywood film, it did not even make that back. It it had an opening weekend gross of two hundred and fifty eight thousand dollars. Okay, it fits the financial requirement. Okay, awards. You're right. You're absolutely right. It hasn't won an Oscar, <laughs> but it, it like 
it got acclaim in the film scene circuit. It, it got the the coveted crying monkey from the Toronto Film Festival or whatever. That is a deep cut to a um, a Tropic Thunder joke. Okay. Um, I, it's hard for a, a movie this quiet to be quotable. However, if okay. I had to put in a quote, it would be, oh my God, you blew his face off. That's what bullets do. <laughs> awesome, amazing quote. <laughs> yeah, okay. I'll, I, I can see it. This this film, despite not making any money, despite clearly not having a, a wide theatrical release, was so regarded, well regarded, and, and so beloved by the people who did see it, that they handed Jeremy Saliane a blank check with which he then made Green Room. Okay. The hype of this one, at least. So Saliane's third film, which I don't remember is on the list or not, it is a Netflix original film starring Jeffrey Wright called Hold the Dark. It is this Jeffrey Wright Alaskan murder mystery thing that I'm very excited to see at some point. That one I will I, I will go ahead and, like, if we determine it's not cult, I will take that. Blue Ruin is cult in a 20... 15 film student jack-off kind of way. Okay. But that is still cold. I can see. <laughs> if only because I know what's good for me. What else is good for me is continuing this lovely creative project with you. By saying our Oscars? By saying our Oscars because I forgot we haven't done that yet. <laughs> uh, what also is good for me is giving every movie we watch some little recognition. Mm -hmm. And even though this one, like, four things, I guess it's still good enough for us to give it Oscars. So, Andy, what Oscar would you give this movie? I think it's absolutely good enough for us to give it an Oscar. And I would give Blue Ruin the Oscar for Best Bud in Ben. We've, we've talked at length about how Ben is, like, a solid friend. In, in such a realistic film, Ben acts unrealistically yeah. to the credit of Dwight and the narrative as a whole. Ben is based off of a real person. What? Ben is based off of a Marine friend of Jeremy Sayonese <laughs> who he like <laughs> consulted on ethics of killing people and gun information. And like Ben is like a carbon copy of a real person the director is friends with. Oh, I love that so much. I love that. And that makes the like, well, no, murder's justified. Blam! Part of it slightly more concerning. Eh. Eh, he was pointing a gun at somebody on Ben's property. There you go. And he has a line where he's like, I had to make sure he was going to shoot you. That's what makes it legal. Right. And you're like, oh. Oh, you're like a genius. And now knowing that that's probably something that Jeremy Saliane's friend like said in real life, like, okay, if you're going to have this character kill the bad guy, you ha it has to be legal. So here's what you do to make it legal. Right. I that love that. Makes it so much better. You know what else makes it so much better? What makes it so much better? That this gets the Oscar for grittiest Home Alone <laughs> Hell yeah, it does. We have Buzz. We have 
sinks that are left running mm -hmm. in a home invasion. We have the idea the end of the day, the whole family comes back together. Oh, Jesus. In the afterlife. Yeah, right. <laughs> and despite the fact that there is no John Candy singing very bad polka, it's still just like a little too close to Home Alone. And I like that very much. I You've seen the, the Home Alone horror movie trailer, right? Yes. Yeah. It's for those of you who don't know, it's the it's the trailer for Home Alone. But just like with a different score and like a narrator who makes it sound like a horror movie and it's incredibly chilling. This is like the thriller movie version of Home Alone, especially the part where um, Dwight is defending Sam's house and he's like army crawling around the basement yeah, we got behind booby people. Traps. We got booby traps. Yeah. Um, no, I, I absolutely wholeheartedly agree with that Oscar. That is stamp. awesome. Yeah, stamp of approval. <laughs> <laughs> Shall we see if our next movie gets a stamp of approval? You know what? I hope so. Not Anaconda. Not Anaconda. Not Anaconda. Not Anaconda. Anaconda is on the list. If you're just joining us now, on every episode of Cult Fiction, we turn to the Hollywood Crypt for our next film. The Hollywood Crypt being the list of 280 films that I have uh, collated for this project. Sometimes we have absolute gems like Blue Ruin, and sometimes we have absolute dumpster fires like Roger Corman's Death Race 2000, the film we watched before this one. Let's find out what we're going to watch next time. We have, out of 280, number 160. And 160 in the list is... Probably not going to be a good one because number 160 is the John Borman 1981 fantasy film Excalibur. I thought we watched that. We have not watched Excalibur. What was the one with like the weird nose looking scene? Nose looking scene? The girl was like coming up and she was like kissing and making out with the guy's nose. Oh, that was Beowulf. Excalibur. So both of these are, to my understanding, are like fantasy bombs. The only thing is this one might be good. I truly don't know. I don't know enough about this film other than I think I've heard that it's not good. Well, we're going to find out. We're going to find out on the next edition of Cult Fiction. If you want to keep up. You can follow us on Twitter at Cult Fiction Cast. You can also rate, review, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. We'll close the crypt for now. But join us next time when we figure out, am I just remembering a Lady of the Lake sex scene, or is it actually in this movie? For Stephanie Johnson, I've been Andy Bowell. <laughs>